Welcome to the Doxology and Theology Podcast presented by the Institute for Biblical Worship at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. That's right. I said the Doxology and Theology Podcast. It's a podcast for worship leaders who know that the gospel is so good, it has to be sung. I'm your host, Matthew Westerholm, Associate Professor of Church Music and Worship at Southern Seminary and the Executive Director of the Institute for Biblical Worship. On today's episode, we are dipping into our worship resources to bring you a clip by Andrew Peterson. Andrew Peterson is the founder of Rabbit Room Ministries. He's written nonfiction books on creativity as well as the award-winning four-volume work of fiction, The Wing Feather Series. But he is probably best known as a well-loved songwriter and recording artist. It's on this topic that Andrew is talking about now in this workshop from our 2021 conference on lessons from his life and experience as a songwriter. Hey everybody, my name is Andrew Peterson. Um, I'm in my office in Nashville, Tennessee. I call this place the Chapter House. Um, it is a wonderful place to hang out. Um, I am uh, I am here to talk to you about the joy and labor of songwriting, um, which I know both of those things pretty well. Um, joy and labor, that is. Uh, I'm going to share with you a few thoughts from my book, Adorning the Dark, uh, which look how the light's catching the title right there. Very nice. The moon glows in the dark, by the way. Um, not my idea, but thank you, publisher. Uh, for coming up with that idea. So, uh, but the book is Adorning the Dark Thoughts on Community Calling and the Mystery of Making. And uh, it's kind of a memoir about the creative process and tells part of my story um, and uh, what it's like to be a guy who's trying to figure out what it means to be a Christian who's called to a, a career or life in, in the arts. And so, um, so I wanted to share with you a few thoughts from this book. Um, I'm going to skip down into kind of the, the second half of the book, after dealing with my story, it gets into like some principles. Uh, I happen to think that there are, that it's, uh, whenever I've taught songwriting classes, um, like it's, it's, I'm hesitant to do that, like songwriting workshops, that kind of thing. I'm, I'm very hesitant because I feel like there's so much of the songwriting process has to be intuited and learned along the way. Um, that there's a lot of it that is instinctive and you can't really teach instinct. You just can do it or you can't, um, uh, which isn't to say that you can't learn to do it, but you kind of have to figure it out on your own. You can't, there aren't very many like easy, simple, easy, simple. How's that for redundancy? Uh, lessons that can unlock anything for you. You just have to sort it out. Um, sometimes it's hard for me to articulate why I think a line is better this way than that way. I just know it. Um, I'm also uh, terrible at math, so I don't understand math. I, 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 I have a hard time getting my head around it. Um, the uh, same thing ha is true of English. I, I did terrible in my English classes when I was a, a student, because uh, at least in like grammar classes, because as soon as it, we got into diagramming sentences, I, I, my brain didn't understand it. I couldn't sort out how to diagram the thing because it was taking this thing that I intuited to be right 
and then was breaking it down into all of its various parts and I just couldn't do it. So I kind of think the same is true about the way songwriting works. It's hard for me to articulate why a thing is good or why this is better than that. I just know it. There may be some nuts and bolts reasons for it, but I just um, kind of have a sense of it. And so part of, part of this book was trying to get to the bottom of some of those things. And so in the process, I identified um, six principles of the creative life that I'm going to breeze through really quickly, and then I'll move on to some more nuts and bolts things if there is time. Let me check the time. So we are at three minutes. So I've got 17 minutes to go. And there's a lot to cover here. Sorry, by the way, if I look rough, I um, got hit by some kind of weird flu yesterday. Not COVID, uh, but it was like a 24-hour thing, and I'm just coming out of it today. So I'm really glad that I feel well enough to talk right now. Um, but if I fall asleep mid-video, just call the authorities. Um, so uh, the first of the principles is serving the work. Um, serving the work. I got that idea from Madeline Langle. She has a wonderful book called Walking on Water, and I read it when I first moved to Nashville about 20 some odd years ago, and it was such a revelation to me. It was the first time I had ever read any theology of creativity um, or the creative process as a Christian. And at the time, you know, I was 20 something years old and I was trying to figure out how to understand my own calling, what it was that I was trying to do. And so reading her book was was huge for me. And so I highly recommend it. Um, it's a, I think it's a classic. And so read Walking on Water by Madeline Langle, and you'll get more out of that than you ever will out of this talk um, or out of this book. Um, so the the idea of serving the work was was so fascinating to me because she talks about how when she's writing her novels or poems, whatever it may be, that there is this sense that um, you are a midwife, that you are there to help this thing come into being. Um, you don't get to be the boss of it, right? So, um, so you have to cultivate this practice of listening to what the song wants. Um, when I was first working on the Wingfeather Saga, my, my fantasy novels, I was um, really intrigued by the fact that so many authors I had read or heard interviews with talked about how uh, the characters in their books began to say and do things they didn't want them to do, right? Um, and that sounds crazy to me because you're the author, they are made up characters, it's your story, how could this be true? But sure enough, the the story, you get this real sense that the story wants to go a certain direction. And you can either bully it back into line and force the story to become what you want it to become, and in doing so, risk risk the thing uh, being less than what it could be, or you can give it some freedom, like allow the thing to kind of like meander. And in doing so, you uh, discover some things about the song that you you wouldn't have otherwise, uh, or the story. So one of the examples um, that comes to mind is a song called My Baby Loves to Dance, which I wrote for my daughter when she was a newborn, uh, maybe a toddler. And she, she was from a very young age, very musical and always kind of danced around as soon as you heard any kind of music. And so I wrote this song and the chorus of the song was what came to me first. The chorus was um, something like, there's that Shakespeare line about how hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. And I was like, uh, it was something like, they say hell. Um, oh no, now I'm forgetting it. Um, they say, uh, I can't remember how it went now. Which is very telling, isn't it? So anyways, 
but there is no love in all the world like the love of a little girl. That was that was how the chorus went. It was something like that. And uh, I was like, this is going to be great. I'm going to sell so many records. It's going to make all the parents cry. So I wrote the song with that as the chorus. Something about hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. There's no love in all the world like the love of a little girl. And then the verses were almost written as throwaway verses. I just kind of like cranked them out. And then I was in the studio singing the song. And... As soon as I finished singing it through the first time, I knew that it wasn't right. And I asked uh, Ben, who was playing piano, I was like, does this feel right to you? And he was like, ah, something's wrong with it. And I was like, huh. And I sang it again and it still wasn't right. And so finally I, I grabbed the choruses and I just removed all of the choruses. There were three choruses and smacked all the verses together and sang the song without a chorus. And there it was. The song worked. And so the thing that got me into the song in the first place, the thing that I was so precious about the thing that I was so defensive of uh, was the very thing that needed to go in order for the song to become what it wanted to become. So you have to serve the work. Okay. Um, that's the first thing. Um, second thing is uh, second principle. First one is serve the work. The second one is serve the audience. Um, serving the audience is uh, to say that um, songwriting is ought to be an act of love. Um, it ought to be a way of caring for the listener. You should keep the listener in your mind. Um, and uh, what that means, practically speaking, is don't show off. I remember David Wilcox, who's, I think of him as the, the uh, Jedi master of, of songwriting. Um, and he said one time, of, he was talking one time about how when he was a young songwriter, he, he was always trying to be clever. Um, and I remember at the time thinking, what's so wrong with being clever? Um, and I can hear in my early songs, like me being a little too proud of a turn of phrase um, and, and that that draws attention to itself uh, instead of the thing that the song is supposed to be about. And so being clever is dangerous. Um, and so one of the examples that comes to mind, I have a song called Hosanna. And in the uh, second verse, maybe third verse of Hosanna, it opens with, I have uh, I had written the lines, I have striven to remove this raiment. I've tried to hide every shimmering strand. And I was very proud of it. You know, the archaic words, striven to remove this raiment. And uh, I talked, I was in the studio with my buddy Ben, the producer, and I played it for him. And he kind of looked up at me after the song was over and he pointed at the lyric sheet and he was like, I have striven to remove this raiment. And I was like, yeah, it's great, right? And he was like, you can have striven or raiment. You can't have both. <laughs> and so I changed it to I've struggled to remove this raiment um, which immediately I, I think you would probably agree that the line is stronger now because the listener isn't having to do any like acrobatics to, to figure out what it is that I mean uh, if I say I've struggled to remove this raiment um, even if raiment is a somewhat obscure word the listener is keeping up right um, if I say striven then they're suddenly having to think twice as hard that was a way of drawing attention to all the cool words I know rather than the meaning of the line. Um, and so uh, I think the point is care about your audience. There's this great illustration that I think I learned from Jason Gray, uh, a buddy of mine, uh, about how he read some writer remembered go, go, taking trips on glass bottom boats when he was a kid, uh, like in Florida or something, and how he would lie on the floor of the glass bottom boat, uh, watching all the like the moss and the tall grasses sway in the water and see the fish. And then while he was lying there, sometimes his glasses, he would get distracted and his glasses would fall off and clatter on the glass. And it would snap him out of the trance that he was in. He would realize all of a sudden 
I'm not down there with the fish. I'm, I'm now on a boat with a bunch of old people or whatever. And, uh, and the principle was try not to let the listener's glasses fall off. You're trying to cast a sort of a spell with your song. And when you play it for people, if there's anything in there that makes their glasses slip off and they notice you or they notice some cool word that they get hung up on or uh, a metaphor that doesn't quite work, then you've broken the spell. So the idea is to try to like maintain uh, the sense that this listener is a part of this little world that the song is, is inhabits. Um, hopefully that makes sense. So love your audience. Care about the audience. Listen to the song that you're writing through their point of view. So the next one is selectivity. Um, I'm just bre breezing through these really quickly. Selectivity is, uh, is a big one because uh, one of the first things that I notice about young songwriters uh, is that their songs are too long. Um, when I look back at my early songs, my songs are almost always too long. I feel like there's this massive uh, sense of triumph if I can write a song that's under three minutes nowadays. Um, there's a great illustration in uh, the movie Legends of the Fall with Brad Pitt. I don't know if you remember that movie. Where the dad, who is a Presbyterian minister who's homeschooling his boys in the woods, um, the son has to write an essay about something and he turns it into his dad so that he can go fishing. And the dad reads the essay and he hands it back to him and says, half as long. And the kid is kind of confused and he goes back and he shortens the essay and he brings it back and the dad says, half as long, again. So the dad keeps telling the kid to boil down what it is that he's saying, which is exactly the opposite of what I did when I was in school. If I had to write a long paper, you're just, you know, you're expanding font sizes and squeezing the margins in just to take up the space. Um, but um, the point is that... Your, your goal is not to take up space. Your goal is to c communicate an idea in an artful and beautiful way. And, uh, and so many songs are way too long. You just squeeze the thing down. If there's something that doesn't need to be there, if it's not serving the song, then it's just got to go. Um, you, you can earn the right to indulge after 20 years or so of songwriting. Every now and then <laughs> you get to uh, uh, learn the rules well enough that you can break them. But um, for the most part, try really hard to, to boil down the song. So what that means is that the song has to be about one thing, not five things. Um, you've got to figure out a way to make it. Uh, uh, the, the way that I think of it is when I first started playing music back in the mid-90s, um, I didn't have a CD at the time. So most of the people who would come to my concerts, I knew that this was their only shot to hear this song. And so I had to figure out a way to minister to them, to convey whatever idea it was that I was trying to convey in this one concert and because that might be my only chance to ever share this idea with these people. And so um, what I was trying to do is make it so that on the way home from the concert, they could be like, hey, do you remember that one song that he wrote about fill in the blank? I wanted to make sure that every song had something where there was, hey, do you remember that one song with that cool guitar part? Or do you remember that one song with that metaphor about the whatever? Um, every song ought to have something about it that is... Uh, instantly recognizable by the people in the car on the way home. Does that make sense? So selectivity, figure out how to boil the song down and find that one thing that the song is about that no other song is about. Uh, that's a big one. Um, so uh, I'm going to, I'm going to just breeze through. So that's selectivity. One of the, uh, one, oh, let me finish by saying that um, in all of scripture, the gospels take up a very small portion of scripture. Like what we know about the man, Jesus Christ is, is pretty, pretty limited. Um, so there's a great picture of selectivity 
Um, the Holy Spirit gave us exactly what we needed to know. And, um, and the Gospels were boiled down, right, uh, to this wonderfully beautiful, crucial information that we needed. Um, and therein lies part of their beauty. Uh, and at the end of the Gospel of John, of course, he says, you know, if, if all the things that Jesus did were written down, then not all the libraries in the world could contain them or whatever it was. Uh, that I think songwriting is the same way. That like you've got to figure out what is the essential thing and get rid of the rest of it. Uh, and in, in doing so, you're, you're keeping in step with the, the Holy Spirit. So uh, discipline. This is a big one. I don't, I don't know what to say about discipline other than you've just got to like... Uh, think of it as think of songwriting uh, through the lens of the long game. Um, think hard about um, the fact that you know, like, how do I say this? So, if after a concert, some songwriter comes up to me and they tell they give me a demo CD or whatever, and they say, "I'm really excited about these songs. I think they're really great." Uh, I'm, I'm a little bit wary, but if they say, Hey, I'm, I'm just starting to figure this out. And, uh, I don't, I know that I'm not great yet, but one day I hope to be, um, then I'm intrigued because that conveys to me that this person is, is, uh, on a journey. Right. And you know, the, the, the thing that's the best thing that can happen with a life of songwriting is not having a hit song. The best thing that can happen with the life of songwriting is a life that is rich because you've cultivated the uh, habit of paying attention to the way God moves in the world. So songwriting like um, gives you these um, special glasses to wear when you walk through the world. Like when I'm in songwriting mode, I, I pay attention to things in a very different way than when I'm working on another project because you're always looking for these little glimmering metaphors, these little um, ideas that that uh, that have inside them whole worlds of potential, right? And so um, so living a life where you've practiced that, practiced paying attention to the way God moves in the world, um, the way he's speaking to you through scripture, through nature, through people, through community, uh, is a good life. And that is regardless of, uh, of, you know, record sales or radio play or whatever. Like that stuff just doesn't matter. Um, like the, the more important thing that is being written is your life, right? And so, um, so the sooner the better. Start to think of your songwriting um, life as a long game, as like this is just a thing that I'm going to include in in my days, and it is going to make my life richer, and it's going to help me um, in ways that are uh, uh, more important than leaving my mark. Leaving your mark is a dead end. Um, so a life of discipline, like find a way to just do the work um, and be thankful for the small victories. And uh, and yeah, that's all I'll say about that. We could talk about discipline all day, but discipline's huge. Um, and then discernment, uh, cultivate discernment. I forget which one this is. Is this the last one? Uh, doesn't matter. I think this is number five. Discernment is is learning what is good and what isn't. And I know that that's hard because you don't want to be a snob. Um, like, I think a little bit of healthy snobbery can be good, you know, but um, you also don't want to don't want to look down your nose at people or, or come off, you know, as a know-it-all. Uh, but if you want to be a songwriter, especially if you want it to be a career, then you, do, you have to do the work. You have to be a student of songwriting, right? Uh, 
be a student of poetry. Like I think a lot of people read modern poetry, which tends to not rhyme, tends to be pretty free verse, and they think, oh, I could do that, and then they write poems. But there's something very different between uh, someone who's just decided one day that they can write poetry, which, I, again, I'm not saying that you shouldn't try to write poetry. You definitely should. But if you're going to take it seriously and play that long, disciplined game of learning to be a poet with a capital P, then that means you have to do the work. You have to, you know, there's a great book called Poetic Meter and Poetic Form by Paul Fussell, which um, my friend Jonathan Rogers bought me for my birthday one year. And it's wonderful. Breaks down the the uh, poetry into all of its parts. And it was so helpful to me. Like the, the way the guy teaches uh, in that book was tremendous but then it like sent me down all these like rabbit trails of reading Coleridge or Wordsworth or uh, um, made me appreciate Billy Collins and Mary Oliver and Lucy Shaw and Denise Lebertov like uh, so as I began to dip my toes into writing poetry I realized that I couldn't do so without learning what good poems were and so becoming a student of, of poems allows me to hold my feeble work up against the great ones and realize Oh, good. How exciting. I've got all this way to go. Right. Um, and so the same thing's true of music. Like, uh, listen to old music, listen to music that is, uh, that is, um, that is like, if there's music that people are like universally acknowledges some of the great music of, in American history, but you don't get it. Maybe you are the one with the problem. Um, I think that about abstract art. I don't get excited about Jackson Pollock um, or uh, is it Kandinsky? I, for, I forget his name. Anyway, that's how much I don't get it. Um, but the uh, I don't get excited about abstract art, but like we've all probably been in an art museum and heard the docent explaining some work of art to the group and you kind of eavesdrop on it and they show, they point out this or this or that, that thing and all of a sudden the poem unlocks itself to you. Um, you realize that you don't know as much as you think you did. So the, the one example in my life is Bob Dylan. I didn't like Bob Dylan. Uh, the most I knew of him was the SNL skits where um, I forget who did Bob Dylan uh, in, on SNL back in the day, but I just didn't get Bob Dylan. And, uh, and I was like, but wait, I'm a songwriter and everybody says he's arguably one of the greatest songwriters in America. I should probably figure out why, right? So I called my buddy Randall Goodgame. I said, hey, what Bob Dylan record should I start with? And he told me, uh, Blood on the Tracks. So I bought Blood on the Tracks. I listened to it three times through and I still hated it. And uh, about the 11th listen, it changed, something changed. And I began to realize how amazing Bob Dylan is. <laughs> and, and I still don't sit around listening to Bob Dylan, but now I have this like deep appreciation for the genius of Bob Dylan. Um, pick an artist that you, uh, that, you, that everybody, every songwriter says is great, but you don't get and do the, do the work of learning why they're great. Um, and the, and in doing so you're cultivating discernment. You're learning why this line works and that line doesn't like it, it what it boils down to is you learn discernment by becoming a student of the craft. Uh, and then finally, the last thing is, is community. Uh, one of the things we say in the rabbit room is art nourishes community and community nourishes art. Uh, art nourishes community and community nourishes art. Uh, I really believe that that humans grow best in the confines of a community, in the garden of a community. And uh, and that by finding a community of people that uh, know and love you, who may not even be cr like uh, artist types, um, that, that planning yourself in that community is going to help your art to grow. Write for them. 
right? Uh, think of your art or your songwriting as a way of loving the community that God has given you. And, uh, and those people are going to love you back and make your art better. Uh, I really believe that's true. So find a way um, to sink into place. Um, pay attention to where you are. So I hope that is helpful. Uh, those are the six principles. I'm going to see if I can remember them off the top of my head. Uh, serve the work. Serve the audience. Um, what was the next one? I can't remember them. I already know. Oh, selectivity. Uh, learn how to be selective. Um, cultivate a life of discipline. Um, learn discernment. Uh, learn uh, what is good and what isn't about songwriting. Um, and then finally, art nourishes community and com community nourishes art. Uh, so I hope that is helpful, you guys. Um, as I said before, you may not ever have a hit song, uh, but you will, uh, or maybe I'll say it this way, you, you may not ever get rich, but you will have a rich life. And, uh, and I think that is a, a good and godly thing. And so thank you. I hope you have a good one. And I hope this has been helpful. See ya. That is a hard place to stop, but if you'd like to hear more, go to our website, biblicalworship.com and click podcast. We are happy to share with you the entire thing for free. While you are on our website, you can find information concerning other free worship resources from the Institute for Biblical Worship and the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. That's biblicalworship.com. what we've got for you this time on the doxology and theology podcast our show is produced by the uber competent juan leon engineered by caleb sherwood and the music is by our good friend joel nagus listen to that quintuple swing until next time this is dr matthew westerholm reminding you friends the gospel is so good it has to be sung peace be with you